Welcome to GDPR Now, a podcast dedicated to GDPR and all things privacy. This week, we're looking at digital detox. Basically, how to manage your digital presence online, how, that, how to restrict it, how to stop it altogether, if that's what you want to do. In the studio today, I've got Abigail Divinetsky, who is going to be giving us her views on our uh, on the best way and the best tools available to to go through a digital detox, if that's what you want to do. So welcome, Abigail. Thank you. Um, and just one caveat, I, I haven't tested out everything that I'm going to mention, so I don't think I'm in a position to say what's best, but what I want to do is raise awareness about what is out there, because the PrivTech industry is booming. We have lots of resources at our disposal. All we have to do is use them. And I'm on a personal mission in 2020 to try and help people um, and also to myself, digitally detox and move away from data-sucking uh, technologies onto something that is a little more respectful of, of my wishes and my privacy. Okay, very helpful. And why don't you tell us a bit about your background? You're a lawyer by training, is that right? That's right. I'm a lawyer um, and a privacy professional. And I currently um, I do quite a few speaking engagements and training. And I write and I advise a portfolio of SMEs, small and medium-sized enterprises, on their privacy compliance, particularly um, with GDPR. And so uh, I try to take a, a blended approach that involves not just the legal advice, but also um, some techniques of privacy engineering, um, operational matters as well. So um, PrivTech is something that's very top of mind to me because, especially for SMEs that outsource everything, um, they usually outsource to some of the bad actors, let's say, or some of the ones that are not as careful. And it would be just uh, a lot easier for them to reduce their compliance footprint by doing things like um, sourcing uh, responsible vendors in the PrivTech world um, who have turnkey solutions for them. Okay, good. So where do you want to kick off? Do you want to kick off on anti-tracking tools? Is that a good place well, to I start? Think, could we start just by talking a bit about what my motivation is? Yes, I think it's ahead. always helpful for people to understand um, before, they, uh, before they embark on this journey with us. Um, I'm sort of on a personal mission right now to help raise awareness about solutions to problems that we've already been talking about a lot. And that big problem, the, the one that we're all very aware of or becoming more aware of, is this notion of corporate surveillance. So our data constantly being hoovered up from whichever website or digital property we access, whether it's a podcast or we're listening to music or we're even entering a store or using an Internet of Things device or a wearable. People are much more aware of that. And although we have, on the one hand, this notion that you know your average layperson doesn't care about privacy or they don't really care to know, I think your average person actually is quite unsettled, especially when confronted just by the magnitude of it. And when we look at things like the Cambridge Analytica scandal or huge data breaches or, you know, um, even things like the Ring uh, camera that was hacked by someone who started speaking to an eight-year-old girl um, when that was supposed to secure the home, things like that give people pause, people who don't necessarily think they care about privacy, and they suddenly realize privacy is something much bigger than they originally thought. So it's not about keeping secrets um, or hiding anything, as you know full well. It's really about your digital sovereignty, your self-determination as regards you know, not just your information, but you know, how people watch you, how you interact with the world. And it's foundational to your other rights. So with Cambridge Analytica, we saw it had a huge impact on, on democracy. With data monopolies um, like you know, Google and Amazon and Facebook, etc., um, we see it has a huge impact on 
the economy. It, it disadvantages clients like mine that do a lot of the data harvesting on behalf of these companies but don't benefit from the data that comes from it. So where I'm coming from in terms of my motivation is that, one, I want to help us wean ourselves off of the surveillance economy you know, so that people can actually choose tools that work. And I think people don't realize how easy it is, um, although behavior change is difficult. But the other piece is, um, you know, I also want to help support the hard work of, you know, PrivTech, the PrivTech industry that are, you know, they're out there working really hard trying to make products that, you know, deliver a win-win for people, that deliver a fantastic product without completely invading our privacy or putting us in conflict um, with what, you know, what tools we're using. Um, you know, they work very hard, but they have trouble scaling. They get eaten up by, um, by big tech and then completely turned on their heads and used for other purposes. So they need our support. And then finally, um, to level the playing field for SMEs, because the data monopoly that comes from this surveillance economy, it privileges a very, very small minority of very big companies. And these companies like mine, as what I like to call sharecroppers, you know, they're basically harvesting on behalf of you know, this big beast, feeding the beast with their website, with the pixels they put on everything, the stuff they put in their apps, getting very little in return and um, are left then in a situation where they don't have the bargaining power um, and they don't have the data to do what they need to do and compete. So that's sort of my, where I'm coming from. Um, on this notion of uh, pets, I mean, there's everything privacy from, like enhanced, you said, enhancing technology. privacy enhancing technology, thank you, fantastic pets. Um, you know, there's everything from what I call, I would put in the digital self-defense tools buckets, and I borrow that term from dataethics.eu, which is a fantastic website. I think every privacy professional should have bookmarked. That's one piece. But then there's other stuff in terms of, like, what are the products we use day to day to listen to a podcast, for example, or to set up a meeting or to chat with someone. There's a whole range of them, and some of them were made in a more invasive way, and some of them have been made in a very secure and privacy-protective way. So I've... We can start with some of the you know, anti-tracking stuff, if you'd like, and then maybe go through some of the other products that are sort of day-to-day -day products that we use, like maps, to navigate and things like that. Well, let, let's do that. A quick, quick digression, though. For those in the UK interested kind of stuff, there's been a couple of reports on the digital economy recently, one by a guy called Furman. I think Roger Furman used to be an economics advisor to Barack Obama. Uh, talking about breaking up, effectively breaking up some monopolies. So, for example, one of the discussions is whether uh, Google data, Facebook data should be available for everybody in the same way when they broke up the telephone monopolies in the UK, the BT, uh, British Telecom infrastructure was available to anybody. And there's a recent report come out recently from the UK Competition and Markets Authority uh, talking about exactly that. So if you're interested in that, in that which is a pretty fundamental approach, clearly. Um, so if you're interested in that kind of stuff, I'll put the link. There'll be lots of links in the show notes. Um, Many from Abigail, a few from me to that, and if those kind of things interest you, you can follow those up. But let's go back to the kind of the main theme. So, do you want to? We can talk about browsers, private search. Sure. Start. Let's start. Yeah. With that. So I put these sort of in the category. Um, well, before we get into the private search, I would talk about maybe some of the tracking uh, prevention technology. So I put that in the kind of watching the watcher category. A lot of these have actually been incorporated into private search engines, so that'll that'll go naturally into that. Um, so on the one hand, we have you know virtual private networks. There are a whole host of VPNs out there, and that's basically to secure your traffic as it travels. A lot of privacy professionals and, and lawyers and people who have to keep their clients' information confidential are or should be aware of these because if they're working at, uh, attached to Wi-Fi in a 
in a cafe or something, they need to make sure they've got a secure connection. But not all VPNs are treated equally, so you do have to read the privacy notice and make sure that it's okay. So Facebook tried to get away with something. They called it a VPN, but they basically said, we safely channel it all through our servers and then you know, to the next place. Um, so I'll have a list of some examples um, in the show notes, but I can just mention a few offhand. So I really like Freedom VPN. Um, it not only is a secure VPN, but it also it shows you all the trackers that it's blocked and so attempts to track you and you get nice metrics from it as well, which is really fun. It's, uh, it's anonymous in the sense that you don't need to subscribe with identifiable information about you, but if you want to gather a more um, detailed picture of what kind of tracking has been happening uh, on your device, um, then you do in that case need to give them some identifiable information to pull it all together. Um, so that's one that I really like. There are lots of them. And would you use it typically in a Wi-Fi environment? You wouldn't use it typically on your home broadband? Yeah, so, you, well, you can use it for various things, but um, the main reason that I use it is, is for example, when I'm um, outside, and uh, it's not even when I'm attached to Wi-Fi. One issue that c comes up is that um, if you've connected to Wi-Fi, then you automatically reconnect to it, or even if you're not reconnecting to it, it's pinging you because it recognizes you, right? So. Um, this is how you can create a very detailed geolocation map of someone's movements is all the different pings to their Wi-Fi, you know, if they haven't changed their or reset their Wi-Fi ID, which you can easily do, for example, on an Apple by turning your Wi-Fi on and off. But, um, but to get back to that point, yeah, yes, for that reason, but some VPNs have more, um, you know, built in with it. So they also will bl block other things, like I said, other trackers and stuff. So, um, so, so that's helpful. Freedom is just one example. Um, there's also uh, disconnect.me has a VPN um, that's pretty pretty great. They've got a free version and then they've got a paid version um, at various levels. And there are a number of other ones. But then there are also, you know, when you're on the web, and let's say you're just opening up your browser, if you want to know, okay, well, you know, I'm surfing, I want to know, is anyone kind of trying to attract me or, or what trackers are out there? There are a few things, well, there are a number of things. Ghostery is one that a lot of people know about. You've got a little um, add-on or widget that you can add on to your browser, um, and then you can get a full report, and you can even manage your preferences from that. Um, you've got things like DuckDuckGo Privacy Scorecard. It's got a scorecard. So again, it's an extension that you add, and it gives you, um, you know, it tells you how they rate the website and what changes they've made to make it better. So it, it went from a D to a B minus, let's say, and you can break that down. Um, Bitdefender has a traffic light. Um, I think in that case you need a subscription, but there's a free Bitdefender uh, mobile VPN, for example, that you can use up to a limited amount of, um, of scans and then you have to pay. But then there's things like privacyanalyzer.net. And that's really cool because you know, if you look at something like Ghostry or you look at some of these others that I've mentioned, they'll tell you about trackers and tags and cookies. But um, privacyanalyzer.net actually goes through a quite an intensive analysis of your web browser when you're on it and where you're on it and breaks down everything it knows about you or, or somebody who is digesting that data could find out about you based on that and it's quite revealing. I do encourage your listeners to, to get onto it and give it a try and see everything from your, you know, the browser types, the approximate location, etc., etc. And this is important because on the one hand, we've really been cracking down on cookies and talking about cookies. And we have Google, for example, saying, oh, Chrome is going to get rid of cookies too very soon because they're responding to competition from other browsers. 
But the fact is, Google has been at the forefront of device fingerprinting, which, if our listeners don't know, that's used, you know, making an educated guess ba based on a correlation of a number of factors that persist across browsers. So if you look at something like privacyanalyzer.net, you can see, right, this is the picture that's painted of me without anything that specifically says me, right, or that has my name. So those are just a few examples of trackers. I mean, there, there are so many more. Um, but then when you get into private browsers, a lot of these have that kind of technology or those add-ons built right in. So one of my favorites is Firefox. I love it. They, they keep expanding the number of add-ons that they put on. So there's a ghostry add-on. There's a Facebook. Uh, they don't call it a cage. It's Facebook container. And so as some of our listeners may be aware, there are Facebook pixels. Um, that are you know, on pretty much every website because web developers sort of put them on as a matter of course. And so even if you're not a Facebook user, you're not logged in Facebook, it can still be collecting data about you and paint quite a detailed picture of you across the web. So the Facebook container on Mozilla Firefox will actually detect that and shut it down unless you decide you want to enable it for that purpose. So things like social sharing plugins that you know, a lot of our clients like to have on their websites those are transmitting information, even if they're not necessarily clicked. Um, you know, th that's another extension. Again, it's built right into Firefox. Brave is another private browser. So again, these two browsers were designed specifically with privacy in mind. Brave does include some uh, privacy-friendly analytics, but they give you the option right at this top um, to, to turn that off. And there are Brave ads that you can opt into if you want to. And again, they don't track the user. They're, they're done in a privacy-friendly way. Quant is one coming out of France, uh, quite a nice browser as well. They have a Quant Junior. So for those of us who are parents of, of young children, I really like Quant Junior because um, automatically it's got certain filters on it, but it still leaves open the option for my daughter to get my permission if she does want to access something that they think is, should be age-gated. Um, and it's actually quite user-friendly. There's tons of stuff. Um, Within that, while we're on the notion of a browser, I mean, there's tons of other functionality. I, I mentioned to... Um, Clicks is another one as well, and Clicks has some great anti-tracking technology baked right in. And Clicks has actually added a new feature, which I think our users will be very interested in, which is they've got this. Um, when you're in their browser, it you can sort of configure your cookie preferences so that it automatically communicates directly with the cookie pop-ups, so you can avoid the pop-ups. So in other words, you would say, as a user, consistently, I only want to opt into necessary. I only want necessary cookies to be allowed. Anyway, you don't have a choice. Um, but I don't want statistics or any of the other stuff. And so it, it remembers your preferences and then it effectively does that automatically. So all it's the, really all cool. the cook up banners, all the consent yeah, requests. That's exactly. And so it's interesting though, because if you load certain pages like TechCrunch, um, I love their articles, but they have a horrific, what we call deceptive design, dece de deceit by design um, cookie. What the answer calls, calls nudging. It's worse than nudging. nudging. It's, uh, what do we call it? No, it's the um, Roach Motel. Yeah. Yeah, it's horrible. Um, all the Oath products use it, and I hate it. So I copy-paste the link, and then I go into one of my private browsers, and I, I access the article from there. So they don't get any, anything from me that they want in terms of analytics. But I digress. To give you an example, so some cookie, um, cookie consent managers are already compliant in the sense that we're trying to be more compliant in the sense that they've only pre-ticked necessary cookies and the rest is done. And it's interesting with the clicks extension, it just all loads very quickly. But with other websites you go to, it takes them longer to undo and communicate the messages that you want for those preferences. 
Um, so that, that's browsers. I mean, there's a lot more we yeah. can say just on browsers. I'm a huge fan of um, of Mozilla and Brave. Those are my two go-tos, but they're not the only ones. And the Quicks one is also fantastic. There's also private search. And we're seeing a proliferation of those. So one of the earlier uh, adopters was DuckDuckGo. Um, and they've done fantastic stuff. Again, they don't save your searches. They don't analyze your searches. As a company, you can optimize your SEO for DuckDuckGo. You can do searches um, with all kinds of shortcuts as well with DuckDuckGo once you get used to it. Another one that is really cool is uh, StartPage. They claim that they're the most private one because not only is the search private, but when you click on the links, they interfere with the content that you've linked to getting that information about the transmission of so, so how you got there and all the tracking that goes with it. So you have that extra layer of safety. So I did a fun little experiment the other day. I was curious to know what comes up when I do. So I don't use Google. I try not to. But I wanted to know what would happen if I Googled myself, right, um, my, my first name by image to see what would come up. And this is because I wanted to set something up for a training exercise I'm doing. And I did it on start page because I didn't want to have you know, all of the things tracked. But it's interesting if you've ever done an image search of yourself or, or a name search, the kind of stuff that comes up. Um, I wanted to know how they got what they got, and it's, it was just made me feel a lot more comfortable knowing that I wasn't being watched as I, as I followed all of those paths to reconstruct. Uh, Ecosia is another one. Now, it's private, but not as private as um, DuckDuckGo and StartPage, um, because they still do store some of your searches um, you know, for a certain amount of time, I think for about a week, and then it's it's uh, eliminated. But um, they say they don't repurpose it, et cetera, and they plant a tree for the searches that you do. So that's kind of a nice thing, right? So those are just a few um, private searches um, that are around, but I think DuckDuckGo is probably the, the most popular one. Um, yeah, I mean, that's just, that's just at the browser level. Um, we can go further and talk about other... Uh, Let's talk about some other, other things then. So what about, I mean, we've got, we've got a list here we're w working through, just looking at Adrian Marr. And f for listeners, uh, listeners, if it's slightly noisy here, it's because um, we're in a cafe in southwest London whose actual detail I will not disclose. <laughs> but that's where we are, so there's some rummaging going on. Uh, what about kind of wallets and, and those kind of things? And yeah, so we're seeing a, a real pr proliferation of the sort of edge computing um, for the consumer, right? So... Um, being able to take your data with with you wherever you go. Um, a few examples uh, are, you know, Digi.me is is one where you can pull sort of copies of your data into this wallet and then you can run analytics on it. And, and there are apps built on that ecosystem. Hub of All Things is another one. They actually have what's called the Hat Data Exchange. So in addition to having, you know, all of your data in your own personal um, container, you also have personal AI, so you can run analytics using their different um, analytics tools within the actual container that you control, and then you can permission in real time the uses or exchanges of your data. So on the company side, let's say a company wants to know, um, let's say a market researcher or some other company wants to know something, and you can give them that information, and there's, there's like real time contractual permissions that are associated with that, and it can be more about inquiring about your data than, um, than taking it and keeping a copy of it. Okay, but that, that assumes that the, the client bit of software has got some, is, is recognized as the API and knows how to work it off the container, yes. presumably. Right, so, so there is, a, there's, I mean, it would take some time to get into it and I, I can include links to it, but um, effectively the way it works is it's your own little private spot on the web. 
So it's, um, it's decentralized. So you get a microserver of your own, your hat. They're now called DataSwift, but it started as hub of all things. And then we have um, various apps and companies that have built on the hat so that they, they can interoperate. But you can bring your Facebook data in there, for example. So they had a long negotiation with Facebook to try and get that to happen. But you can, you can pull in data from various um, widely available apps, like social media apps and things as well. Um, so, so those are two. I mean, there are others as well. Um, I don't know how. Interesting concept. Wasn't, I remember Tim Berners-Lee was working on something. And he's working on solid. Yeah. And then we have things like even uh, on the notion of decentralization, you have things like um, social networks that are decentralized as well, like Diaspora and Minds. Uh, we're kind of going into social networks when we talk about Mastodon is another one, you know, sort of instead of Twitter. Um, and, you know, these are, these are ways of kind of not, I mean, it, it addresses a number of, of issues. It um, avoids the situation of, you know, all that, basically focus on putting on the user at the center, right? So you carry your data with you wherever you go and it's yours, as opposed to having it replicated on so many different servers and so many different companies. Well, it's impossible to control anyway. Yeah, so, and then, then also from a security perspective, you don't have a single point of failure, right? So we hear about these big, you know, Equifax breaches and things like that. There's a single point of failure. If you're just transacting on data as a company as opposed to holding on to it, then you're not really as appealing, which is one of the reasons why people talk about the blockchain, right? Although the blockchain, there are other you know, issues around that, and that could be a whole other podcast. But the notion of federating identity and data management is that more and more we are our, our data, and um, we need to interact on it, whereas the current data ecosystem that we're in, the, the predominant one, is really built on the paper system, where it wouldn't have been practical to try and decentralize. Now with the digital world, there's no reason we should have multiple copies, digital copies of things everywhere that can be kind of spread about, right? Or, or all kept by one entity and then kept by another entity and then shared again. Um, related to that would be things like digital identity management. So if you look at something like, um, there's a Canadian product called Verified.me, which allows you to securely um, verify your identity and, and, and transmit the necessary documents, let's say, to open up a bank account or um, set up life insurance or, you know, do know your client with a, with a law firm. Um, but it's, it uses triple-blind technology that puts the individual in control um, and leverages existing verified credentials from, um, you know, institutions or government. And is that a paid-for service or a free service? Yeah, so I'm not sure um, because Verified.me is only available in Canada right now. So I'm not sure. But then there's something... Similar is not exactly the same, called Yoti, which is also digital ID verification, but they also do things like age verification and a number of other things. You can download the app as an individual. Um, but you do raise a good, a good point when you ask about that because the question people are going to ask is, we're so used to getting things for free, right? And it costs a lot of money and time and energy to develop software and to develop products and apps and things like that and to manage them and to run the servers and to have the security in place, it costs even more to do it right in a privacy protective and secure way, which is why we see so many security flaws in so, much, uh, so many of these products. But as we all know, as privacy professionals, when the product's free, you're the product. Um, Shoshana Zuboff, who wrote uh, Corporate Surveillance, goes further and she calls us data carcasses because we're even less than the product. <laughs> we're just raw material, um, which is a pretty horrible way of looking at it. So on the one hand, I think we should be willing to pay for things like news and quality journalism. We should be willing to pay for 
things like apps that we use for everything else, we've gotten so accustomed to using them for free and we're, of course, paying in other ways. And it has negative societal consequences. That said, a lot of these um, PrivTech companies have, in order to survive, they need to have a model that works B2C and B2B2C. So you see something like Baycloud, they've got a B2C product, but they also work you know, business to business um, you know, to offer uh, things on the back end, and that's how they monetize. There's an interesting, coming back to the competition law, antitrust law, a uh, bit that we mentioned, that if the, to what extent are the big players like Google and Facebook by providing this stuff for free, excluding other people for entering the dumping. market? Yeah. yeah, we would call that dumping in the international yeah. trade world. Absolutely. Yeah, would, yeah. And they are, right? Because they're, what they do is they, they, um, they do drive the price down and they do have the marketing power, the market power right because they've got their market they've certainly got the market power yeah um, so there's a middle ground that some companies have tried to adopt so for example there's a, an ad free private social network that's really picking up steam now called MeWe and MeWe um, it starts out free but if you want to have a business page or you want to have some special icons or stickers or, like there are value added things that you can add to it to pay so they don't need to track you and they don't need to monetize you because you can pay for their products but that's what it should be because the fact is right now with the freemium model we really are in a conflict of interest where this tool that's supposed to be for me and benefiting me is a, really a Trojan horse right it's it's and, and it's not being used and is me we intended to be a kind of cross between Facebook and LinkedIn is it or? Uh, yeah I mean so me, I can't speak on behalf of me but having used it um, in terms of the interface, you've got news feeds, so you can choose to follow one particular news publisher, or you can you can follow different groups, or you can get involved with different groups, which are all managed by the administrator who accepts you or doesn't accept you. You can post the way you would, let's say, on Facebook or Twitter. Like it kind of feels like a bit of a hybrid there. And then in terms of following the news, you've got kind of like the Twitter type news feed if you want, and then it has a bunch of other features as well. It has private chat, for example. So if you want to, so it couples that in. So if you want to have a chat. Um, with, you know, friends who are also on MeWe, then you can choose to have that, and that's end-to-end encrypted. But you can also have, I think, on this one, you might even be able to have disappearing chats, or they were working on that. But we can talk about chats, because there are other um, companies that do offer disappearing chats as well, and and end-to-end encrypted chats. So that would be alternatives to WhatsApp. Um, So, yeah, on this question of cost, some of these things do cost. Some of them are really not outrageous and uh, and I think, in my view, well worth it. So, like, My Permissions, for example, is an app that allows you to centrally manage your permissions for a host of different social networks so you can, and other platforms. So from that, it'll do a scan, and then you can say what, what your, it says what your permissions already are for, like, Dropbox, Facebook, um, Insta, and then you can modify it from within there for all three of them at once. So that's really nice. It just makes it less, there's less friction, but it costs a bit of money. It's not outrageous, but it, you know, it does cost a bit of money. So what about the data subject rights automation and the whole, we've talked a bit about some of the permissions management within browsers where it comes kind of bundled in. What about kind of data subject rights managed, data subject rights automation? Yeah. So we've got a, a whole host of them from websites that will, you know, you put in your you put in some very basic information about you and it'll scan all the different subscriptions you have and help you unsubscribe to a bunch of things. And that's not exclusively a privacy or data protection issue, but obviously does have a withdrawal of consent element to it, right? And a deletion potential element. So you've got things like, um, I think it's a deceit.me 
um, there's uh, if you want to make a data subject access request um, using you know leveraging sort of a triple blind technology and and verify your identi identity as well to the body that you're making the request to there's tap my data which has been um, it's been some really interesting work in this area um, and I think for tap my data I think it's free for the user but I think it costs for the company but the company then benefits so the company that's responding to the data subject access request benefits from the fact that it's you know there's an audit trail to verify that it was done with timestamps and everything else it's done with, you know built on privacy by design and it's securely transmitted so a lot of the issues that come around from a company trying to respond to a DSAR um, are resolved through that, but there's so there's and does it validate there. the identity? But as I would well. verify with them that yeah. that's accurate. That's my understanding Thank of it. Um, sorry, yeah, but they've added an identity verification uh, tool there. Yeah, so DC.me is another one. Um, there are other companies that will help you find out what what um, data companies have on you. So there's one called I can't remember the name of it. I'll have to I'll have to give it to you later. But um, there's a journalist who was doing a lot of research uh, into online dating, and she wanted to know you know, what Tinder had on her, and she got a lot of help from them. So they're almost like advocacy slash, you know, automation in terms of um, data rights. Uh, so there are a bunch of things like that. Um, again, same things, even like my permissions, which is an example that I gave you. It does a privacy scan, and then you manage your permissions directly there. Uh, and then also the built-in clicks, um, cookie management is another example. So, I mean, there are a bunch of things like that as well. Um, and where, do you think there's much happening in the, we talked about, uh, was it DigiMe, the one, the one that holds their own data, that the container? Yeah, that, and HAT as well. And HAT, okay. So those, I would say, are also, they are also digital rights automation because you're pulling your data into your HAT as well, so there is a whole access. And how much has the, um, right, at the moment, you've got the Trojan horse model, so actually you, you, you get the functionality from Google, but, but the critical code, you give your data. You know, you're either aware or not aware. To what extent are you seeing um, more uh, clearly financial transactions? Oh, put your data here, I'll pay you whatever for it. Is that happening more and more, data monetization? So there are data monetization models, and it, data and attention monetization models. And I think it's really important uh, to make a distinction between selling data, which would suggest that you're giving something up forever and licensing it. And I would argue that something like the hub of all things model, the hat model with the hat decks is a licensing model in the same way that you would license your intellectual property or you would license any number of other things. You never fully give up your data, but you allow them to use it for certain specified purposes, right? And then you can, you agree to a term and then when that term ends, you can extend or whatever, or you can withdraw your consent or depending on what the legal basis is. And Digi.me, um, I think with Digi.me, and I haven't used it yet, so that's why I put that caveat on there. I think you bring in copies of your data, and then in terms of how it actually works, um, the option to monetize or to do whatever you want with it, that, that's up to you. It's yours, right? So the hat data exchange gives you an actual mechanism to exchange in exchange for something of value, whether it's money or whether it's you know, bonus points or loyalty schemes. The loyalty scheme model is a really good example of that. So yeah, there are, and, and there are other examples too. So Brave has Brave rewards now. They're called Brave Attention Tokens. So the idea is that I want to watch an ad, I get some Brave Attention Tokens, and then I can use that to make other purchases. It's kind of creating its own currency. Um, Clicks has something as well. They've got uh, an extension called My Offers. And again, um, locally on the browser end, so on your device, not centrally, they'll analyze 
some of the things that you've looked at, or they, the technology will analyze some things that you've looked at to try to identify and then match without linking it specifically to products or offers that might be of interest to you. So it's still a way of targeting offers, but in a, way, but in a much more privacy-protective way. Right, so that's an example of a kind of monetization for your attention, right? And how do you think, and how is that going to fit with the GDPR notion of consent? And I say this in, in this way because it seems to me that the way it's always been designed, well, they were always worried that Facebook and, uh, and, uh, and Google and will sort of say, well, actually, it's a trade, right? Yeah. Um, you can, you know, you, I'll give you this use, you give me your data, it's a trade, and there, thereby you've consented. Yeah. And they've always tried to work around that. Yeah, recently they've changed their argument and they've said actually it's contractual necessity that we're relying on. So it's like they're trying to have it both ways. Um, can I just add one more example of monetization of a, of a store, sure. which is Goodloop? It's an, an ethical ad tech company that allows you to show um, video ads if users agree to watch it for 15, so a user has the option of watching it or not watching it, if they click on it and they watch for 15 seconds of the 30 second ad, then they can choose which uh, nonprofit or charity they want to donate a portion of the ad revenue to. Um, so you can do that and just start watching ads yourself to be able to make donations and contribute to different campaigns. And then the company itself, they don't necessarily get data about you, but they're, I think they are including some kind of option to get more analytics. But again, you, you decide how to do that. On the issue of consent, so it's important to, to note, um, when we talk about from GDPR, we're talking about what a lawful basis is, right? And so if you were to try and say, give me your data in exchange for this, you're making it con conditional. And already by virtue of Article 7.4, it is not consent, right? There's a big misunderstanding and conflation between consent and contractual necessity. And if you think about a contract is essentially a consensual mechanism, right? And so my, my training is in common law and civil law jurisdictions. And in the common law, there's this whole notion of you have to sort of have something of value that you give in consideration. It's a ridiculously pragmatic approach. But in civil law jurisdictions, they talk about, you know, the object and the cause of a contract. If you were to look at a data exchange as something being the object of your contract, like the purpose we're doing this all together is for the contract, you could argue that a data exchange for money or other valuable consideration is necessary for the contract. For example, if I want to, um, I want to get paid to respond to a survey, right? So I want to get some kind of, you know, for an academic survey or to participate in academic research. And that could be complicated by other things, but to try and simplify it, and my data is necessary for that purpose, then you can justify the data on the basis of contractual necessity, provided that you meet all of your other obligations in terms of necessity and proportionality and data minimization, purpose limitation, et cetera, et cetera. And you've done your DPIA and whatever else. So I don't think they have to be fundamentally inconsistent. I think it's the, it's the way it's been done historically has, is, is imbalanced against the consumer and against the data subject. I would, yeah, perhaps. I, I would put it, I, I think the GDPR has tried very hard not to uh, to make sure that Google and Facebook and others can't use while well, you've consented because it's a contract, it's a quid pro quo, and they and I kind of wonder uh, whether they've pushed it so far that it actually makes it harder for for people who actually do want to do a proper well, you know, I'll give you five dollars for this data to make it make it a bit harder because once they say yeah, we allow 
money, uh, money for data exchange, it's quite hard to say uh, we won't allow a functionality for data exchange. No, so I think I think where I think where it becomes problematic is again it gets to the quality of bargaining power, and we have the mechanisms in our own in our own. And the fact is, to be honest, if we were contracting and and they were using contractual necessity, they would be in a much like as a company trying to use contractual necessity to buy or license someone's data they would actually be in a much more onerous position to defend that as contractual necessity because they would have to look at each data element and they would have to look at the terms of the contract. And then also it would be enforceable as a contract and it goes two ways, as opposed to consent where all you can do is withdraw your consent. That's your only recourse. Apart from, I mean, there may be other like tort law sort of extra contractual liability recourses for you. In the contracts, once you get into the contract space and we're Facebook has to be really careful because now it's trying to switch things around at the last minute, is we have consumer protections. So I, there was a brief spell in my life where I did consumer, I mean, I, I was a litigator, and some of the work that I did was consumer class action defense. And contracts of adhesion, so the ones that you're, like the terms are already written, you have no negotiating power and you just sign here, are written, will be interpreted against the person who's written, you know, the company that's written the contract. And if you used any deceptive practices, no, There's a whole host of regulatory uh, under, under the, recourse, right? Yeah, consumers of most Western countries get a lot of protection under, under the law, right? Yeah. But that point I was making slightly different was yeah. where that but point taken. Yeah, no, no, but, but your point, in my view, consent has been, the whole notion of consent, and this is a beef of mine, which is why I love these tools, because we don't waste our time even trying to deal with that. Um, it, it, it gives this illusion of control because you're said to have consented to something, but you weren't informed. They use nudges. They, they t make you tunnel and click to oblivion. Try managing well, uh, your preferences even, on, a, on or, an oath website. Or you put it other way. Even if, if you do understand all the stuff, if you're looking at 30 websites a day... How much time do you have to sit there ma managing all of that, right? And they take advantage of that. So there's what um, the author of Strategic Privacy by Design... Uh, Jason Kronk put it really well. It's informational, like he calls it, um, what does he call it? Informational asymmetry. They've got all the cards, right? They know what they're gonna do with it, how they're gonna get it, et cetera, et cetera. And if you're going to make an informed decision and consent, which is what consent is supposed to be, you need to know all of that. But to spend all of the time knowing all of that means clicking and tunneling and clicking and tunneling and all you wanted to do was buy something for your daughter's birthday. And you simply don't have the time. So that leads us to the privacy paradox. But the privacy paradox is not an accident. And it's not the fault of consumers. It's the fault of a system that's been predicated on this false notion of equality between bargaining parties premised on consent. I don't have the time or the power to consent with a company that holds all the cards, that hides all the information from me, and does all kinds of things I never would have expected. You put it in the realm of contract, and now suddenly we're supposed to be in a contractual relationship, but it's commercial, and at least we're being honest that it's commercial, right? They weren't being honest before. Oh, it's about connecting with your friends. No, it's not, it's about you data mining, right? And, and I'm, you know, we help to grease it. Um, so on that notion of consent, I actually think it, it puts the onus of privacy protection and privacy control on the weakest player in the entire equation, right? And then, then gets angry at us or, or says we don't care about privacy and, and talks about the privacy paradox as if we were empowered. What I love about privacy technology and privacy enhancing technologies is it does empower us. It does put me in a little more control. Not all of it, 
gives me something. And the fact that there are companies that want to adopt these as part of their own businesses, companies like the ones that I advise that want to integrate it into their tech stack, what they call, you know, the, the privacy tech stack, that's fantastic because now it's like we're all benefiting, right? We're all getting a fairer exchange. So I, mean, I could go on and on about that, but I, I, I do take your point and I think there is a risk and there is a risk because of that inherent inequality, inequality of people being exploited for their data and we do see that. And we've seen that historically in the medical field, for example, when it comes to research. So using your, your, your unique gene to identify and create a drug for, uh, or some kind of um, detection system for a unique form of cancer, but then now you can't afford the treatment, which is built on your genetic data in the first place. You know, we see inequalities like this all of the time. That's a whole topic for another, another podcast, but... No, it's, no the, and the, the point's well made. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Not at all. Um, look, that, I think that brings us, to, I mean, that's, that's that very interesting discussion. Um, that kind of brings us to time. As we kind of wrap up, are there any points that you particularly want to highlight that we haven't covered already? They, for listeners, we're going to have a, in the show notes a lot, lot, lot of, you know, references, URLs, the links will be there. Yeah, and if we include my, my LinkedIn um, address, I'm also, I'm hopefully in time for Data Privacy Day, I'll have a little slide deck up as well highlighting some of the different tools that I've mentioned. Oh, this, and and we're hoping that this, we're planning for this podcast. Or after. <laughs> Data Privacy Day, which I believe is Tuesday the 28th. 20, yeah. So you'll know whether it's out on time or not. Um, okay, so, um, yeah, I mean, uh, look, I guess the, the, the point that I'd like to, to make is that it might seem like a lot to change you know, your privacy settings or change your practices and whatever else, but... If we look back at all the different apps you've used and all the different technology you've used, at one point it was new and you had to get used to it. You know, my in-laws, who are in their 70s, didn't use WhatsApp until we were all spread around the world and they wanted to see their grandkids and so they wanted to use WhatsApp. And my brother-in-law convinced them to download WhatsApp and they got used to it. So why can't they get used to Signal? Why can't they get used to something else? Why can't they get used to Jitsi Meet, you know, if they want to get in touch and have a private conversation? I think we have to be willing to make the effort as individuals, as, as digital citizens, and I think especially as privacy professionals, to not only you know, have a look at this from a self-preservation perspective, but also in terms of helping to make the world a bit of a better place and walking the talk, to at least try and change our behavior ever so slightly. So my challenge to the privacy professionals and others listening to this podcast is let's make 2020 the year you wean yourself off of corporate surveillance. Let's make 2020 the year that you stop, as one uh, apostate of the ad tech world has called it, um, making the problem just a little little bit worse with each click and each app that you, you pick, even though you're a good person with good intentions. If you have a choice between a private, privacy-focused navigation tool like TomTom, use that instead of Google Maps. You know, let's just try making little changes to our behaviors and maybe we'll get somewhere. So okay. that's my challenge to you, digital detox. Okay, well, that's, that sounds uh, very positive and very doable. So Abigail, thanks very much. Abigail's contact details, LinkedIn page will be in the show notes. Um, so please take, feel free to take advantage of those. That brings us to this, the end of this episode of GDPR Now. If you've got any questions or want to take part, uh, drop me a line at info at thisisdpo.co.uk. Um, and thank you for listening.